Uh, those of you who don't know me, uh, name is Brian, lead pastor here. And so if you're checking out Hope, checking out Christianity, uh, thanks for being here. I want to give you a welcome. And then at the same time, uh, restrooms are, are, are kind of just through the hallway back this way. Um, and if you have any questions about who we are, why we're here, feel free to talk to me. So we are uh, kicking off a new series on prayers. This is week one of nine. This is going to take us through January 8th. Uh, the second week in January. And so um, I'm excited to, to dig into this series. And while this is uh, still a, a topical series in the sense that we are looking at um, the topic of prayer, we're going to specifically be looking at prayers that are prayed in the Bible. And, and so we'll be in a passage that we'll be doing. We'll be able to walk through a passage, even though uh, next week we won't be in the same passage we're in this week. Let me read the little blurb. And uh, it's kind of a cool moment. So Paul Stiver, one of our elders here, he uh, was actually the one that, that came up with this. And so the other uh, two locations are, are preaching the same sermon right now. And so it's kind of a cool moment when uh, every, every January um, we, we kind of you know, plan out the calendar and, and Paul was like, hey, I think this would be a, a cool series to do in the fall. And we all agreed. And so, and so that's, where, that's where we're here. So this is kind of the little blurb that uh, Paul wrote about this um, uh, our, our Paul, not the apostle. He did not write about this. Um, says this, prayer is a vital yet often confusing aspect of the Christian life. Do I pray enough? Uh, what, how should I pray? What should I pray about? The prayers of the Bible have much to teach us about our freedom to relate to God through prayer. And in these prayers, we learn about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So that's where we're gonna be for the next nine weeks, looking at different prayers in the Bible. Uh, let, me, let me start off by, um, if you don't know who these individuals are, I have pity on your soul. Uh, these are the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, and I grew up, you know, as a child of the 80s, and, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were, were just someone uh, who came up with an idea that just sounded weird and radical, and it stuck, and it, and it took off, and it's still making millions of dollars um, in the box office with their, with their movies, which I actually have not seen. Keep, let, me, let me keep my childhood in my childhood. You know what I mean? Stop, stop bringing Transformers and the Ninja Turtles. I don't want to see it. I love it when I was a kid. Don't, don't, don't ruin it for me, right? Uh, anyways, you got Michelangelo. He's kind of the, the goofy guy of the group. Uh, Raphael, he's the serious kind of really intense character. You got Leonardo in the blue. who uh, He is the, the leader of the pack. And then Donatello. I'm not using notes here. Okay, this is all, this is all up here. Donatello, he's, the, he's, the, uh, he's kind of the, the hacker of the group, right? He's the techno guy. Um, and, and kind of a fan theory with the Ninja Turtles is, is uh, based on their weapons and their personalities, uh, that Splinter, he, he's, their, uh, he's their, their sensei, um, that he uh, gave Michelangelo, who's kind of the goofball, he gave him nunch, nunchucks, nunchucks, is that how you say? Uh, which require an intense amount of focus and diligence to be able to use that weapon. And then with Raphael, who's the hothead, he's the one who's always picking fights, he gives them these things called twin side. They look like uh, forks, you know, these little forks that are mainly, they're, they're used for, for, they're a defensive weapon. And then, and then Leonardo, he is the leader of the group, and he's given two uh, katanas that, uh, that is the leader of the group. He has the ability to decide if lethal force is necessary. And then Donatello, the smartest guy of the group, is given a stick uh, for a weapon, right? Um, and just kind, of, just kind of interesting. Now, bow staff, whatever, it's the same thing. It's a long stick. Um, but yes, that is the correct terminology for it. Donatello was always my favorite 
uh, mainly in video games because his bow staff had the longest reach. And so that's why I was always a fan of Donatello. Not that that matters. Now, this is a fun fact for you. Did you know that these four characters are actually based off of four people, right? Uh, actual human beings uh, that were in the Renaissance, Michelangelo, uh, Leonardo, uh, Raphael, Donatello, all there. They didn't normally wear those headbands on their faces to, this is just to help you see who, who is who. Now, here was the point of this. Where am I getting at? Where are we going with this? The Ninja Turtles was just for fun, uh, but this is where I wanted to get and land, specifically looking at Raphael, uh, the Renaissance man, the painter, uh, the sculptor, but mainly he was known for his paintings. He died uh, as an extremely young man at 37. Um, that's how old I am, I think. I'm pretty sure I'm 37. I think I just turned 37. It's one of those numbers in there. Uh, but Raphael, though, a younger young man, uh, he's actually buried in the, uh, the, the Pantheon in Rome, if you've ever been there. And you can see his, uh, is it Pantheon or Parthenon? I always get those mixed up. Pantheon is the one in Rome, right? Pantheon, sorry, Pantheon. Uh, anyways, here's, the, here's why I bring this up. Because the passage we're going to be looking at today in Mark chapter 9, so if you want to follow along in Mark chapter 9, Raphael, his, his masterpiece, this huge painting that he did, I don't have the exact dimensions because it was in centimeters and I don't know what that means, but I know it was really big, um, was that he painted, uh, this was his last thing. It was, it's in the, it was behind where he was buried for a very long time and it was commissioned by a church, and I forget where exactly, but... Uh, where he was. And so the, the, the passage we're going to look in Mark chapter 9 is the healing of this uh, demon-possessed boy. And so uh, we're going to be looking at this image, not that the image is the text, it's not, the, but the, the text inspired this image, and I think it's very telling. And I think it's going to help us walk through the text. Um, and so, um, uh, and so you're, anyways, the, the image here... It, 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 Again, I know I'm looking at a, just a, you know, a, a picture on a screen if, if you, you, know, you can even see it, but the, 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 the family, if you can tell, they're a little bit brighter. The family that brings this boy, they're, they're, they're brighter in color than the disciples. And there's nine disciples down there and they're just a little bit darker. You've got Matthew there in the bottom and he's, he's the one who's always writing things down in pictures because he, was, he wrote the gospel of Matthew. And so that's why he's depicted as that. But the, the disciples are a little bit darker because they're shrouded in confusion. Um, and then the family, they have a little bit more faith. And so that's why they are a little bit brighter. And so this week's sermon uh, in particular is called, I Believe, Help My Unbelief. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, uh, 14 through 29. Now we haven't been able to do this for a couple of weeks. Oh, excuse me. We haven't been able to do this for a few weeks just because of the nature of our last series, but I actually want us to stand and read. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just the beginning of this. So if you would just stand with me as I read, if you're able to, as I read this passage out loud, just looking at Mark chapter 9, just specifically right now, verses 14 uh, through um, 18. He says this, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked, this is Jesus. And a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Thank you, you may be seated. So now... I want to look at what is exactly going on here. And so I want to start with this first phrase, when they came to the other disciples. Last week, I just kind of flippantly mentioned St. Augustine. He talked about biblical interpretation. How do we interpret our Bible? He said there's three main rules to follow. 
Three main rules when it comes to the biblical interpretation. Number one, context. Number two, context. And number three, context, right? Context, context, context. I used to teach a uh, junior high Bible class in a separate lifetime. It feels like a very long time ago because um, I don't know how I did that. I don't have patience for junior hires. I don't know how I did it. Uh, and, and so context, context, context. And I used to always say, context is king. Context is king. And so I had a, a test where we had a you know, fill-in-the-blank test. It was open notes. I was very easy on them because I wanted them to not hate the Bible. It was very chill as a teacher. And, but it was a fill-in-the-blank. Context is, and most of them said key, K, K-E-Y. And I was like, no, it's it's king with a G, king, context is king. I was like, key, I get it. I, I can see how that happens. So I gave him the point, even though it was wrong. Um, everyone gets a trophy, uh, sorry. Context, context, context. That's what's important, okay? So when we look at this, again, just going back and look at this, when they came to the other disciples. So if you just start right here in verse 14, well, who's the they? And why are they separate from the other disciples? And that's why context really, really Matters And even in the painting that Raphael paints, I didn't give you the full context. Because right above where this father and the family comes with this boy and the disciples, right above that, you have Jesus painted. And this is the transfiguration of Jesus. And we can't understand what's happened at the bottom of the mountain with the disciples and this boy without getting a fuller picture and understanding of what's happening on this mountain. And this is what's been called the transfiguration of Jesus. And so this is going to make our passage in, in, in chapter 9, verse 14, and this prayer that we're going to be looking at come to life. Right? Paragraph, paragraph breaks are really good. It helps us with our reading. But if I'm, just, if I'm going through my Bible and I'm just reading a, a chunk and a headline a day or a whatever in my Bible, I, I kind of, you, you miss out. And so, again, paragraphs are great, but they're not inspired. Paragraph breaks and chapter headings are not inspired. And so I want to go back and read the context here. And so I'm going to go back to Mark chapter 9, looking at verse 2. And it says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Okay, so that is the they in the passage that we're looking at today. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain. Which mountain? Doesn't matter. We don't know. Nobody knows. Maybe Mount Huron. Nobody knows. That doesn't matter. They go to a high mountain. Other passages, other books, Luke in particular, tells us that they went up there to pray. And if you know Jesus, and if you've studied Jesus or read anything about Jesus, he loves to retreat. He loves to get away from the crowds and the, and the chaos of life and retreat by himself and usually brings a couple of the disciples with him to pray. And that's what he's doing. He's going to to commune with his father, and they're going to pray, and they were there all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. What is going on? This is such a, a magnificent passage, and it's not our passage. Maybe another day, another time, we'll really get into this, but what does this mean? Jesus, his countenance changes. He, he looks differently, even to the point where his garments change color and are, are, are bright. And then it even says this, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So what's going on, right? Jesus is being transfigured. There's something about his countenance changes and Moses and Elijah show up. Why Moses and Elijah? When Jesus is on this mountain, he's praying and there's something, he's been saying it over and over to his disciples, that the son of man must be delivered over to the Gentiles and be killed and then will be raised, raised from the dead. That he's gonna suffer and he's gonna die. That, that has to happen. 
And the disciples like, no, 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 that's not gonna happen. He's like, you guys don't understand. This is gonna happen. And so here, Jesus now knowing, this is like the week of, of he's gonna die. He knows this, he goes up to this mountain. And I think that in his prayer, and this is not just me and other, other books that talk about this, but again, this is, we're not gonna focus on the transfiguration. Now what happens? that he's praying and I think he comes to grips with reality that he, as the savior of the world, must suffer and die. And it's in this moment that he says, that is my job, that is my role, that I'm going to suffer and die for these people. And in that moment of realization for Jesus that he's lifted up, and here we see Elijah and Moses that show him and they're, they're, they're attributing to the fact, yes, yes, this is, this is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. And so Moses representing the, the, the or excuse me, the, uh, the, the law uh, and the Pentateuch and then Elijah who's representing the prophets, they're saying, this is what we were wrote, this is what everything is about. Everything I wrote about, everything that we wrote about is all pointing to Jesus, all pointing to the Messiah, all pointing to the Son of Man. And Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love the commentary here in Mark. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened, right? So he's just like, let's, let's make a temple for you, all three of you up here. Like, right? you, you can't have seen people who have been dead for a long time and Jesus being transfigured in front of your eyes. Like, what, what do you say? And then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud and said, this is my son whom I love. That should maybe ring back if you're familiar with the Bible. If not, that's okay. We're gonna talk about it. When Jesus starts his ministry, he gets baptized by John the baptizer by his older cousin and he baptized him. And as he comes up out of the water, again, the voice from the clouds say, this is my son whom I love. This is the second time now a voice from the clouds has said, this is my son. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them, uh, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing risen from the dead meant. Right? They, they still didn't get it. Jesus has grasped his reality, his, what, what he needs to do to save mankind. And the disciples even seeing this glorious scene are going, what, what do you mean that you're going to die? What does he mean? Well, you have to die and be raised from the dead. Well, they had no, no concept for it. So now we have a little bit of a fuller picture that when we see not just the painting, but now we have a little bit of context now when we get back to Mark chapter nine. And again, starting in verse 14, when they, these three, the four, excuse me, Jesus and Peter, James and John, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man who was in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And so Jesus has an opportunity here to respond to the situation. And here's what he says. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Whoa, 
what? Uh, what do you, what do you uh, is that really the response of Jesus? And again, the parallel passage in Luke, Luke chapter nine, Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, you faithless and perverse generation, how long am I going to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. This is some intense language, but why? Why is Jesus doing this? And you go, well, maybe, maybe unbelieving, faithless. Maybe that's not what it means. Let me just read from one commentary, Norville, Norville Gildenhiss. He says this, faithless indicates unbelief as well as faithlessness. Perverse refers to utter perverseness and here indicates the state of all who are present there, period. That's the definition, but then he goes on to commentate. Not one of them had laid hold on his power in such a manner that he could in, like, in childlike faith cause the might of the evil one to be broken. So the question that we need to ask is why does Jesus respond in this way? Why do they come to him and say, Jesus, we went to your disciples to cast out this evil spirit and they couldn't do it. And Jesus' response is generation of faithlessness, unbelieving. Why does he do that? And the question that comes up is, is it a lack of faith? Your faithless generation Right? You unbelieving generation, you faithless generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And I think we need to make this extremely clear because this is a passage, as I'm gonna mention in just a minute, that has been abused, I think, in the church. I know it was used against me in my life and I'll explain that in a minute. But it's this, it's not the amount of faith, but it's the object of faith, right? And so when Jesus says, you you faithless generation, because you're putting your, your faith in something else, in something tangible. You, you think you can do this. You think you can cast out a demon. You're missing the point. It's not the amount of faith, it's the object of the faith. Uh, are any of you in here um, airplane landing clappers? Anybody in here? Yeah, we got one. I knew we would. Thanks for uh, admitting that. Um, right, uh, here's, here's the thing. I, I've been on planes that have had some pretty intense turbulence at some point, right? Uh, and not, not like where you see the videos of people like they're flying up and slamming into this. Not that, not that, but, but pretty intense sometimes, right? Where, where cups are going, right? At least you're spilling hot coffee on yourself. I've been to that, at least. I'm a coffee drinker on the, on the plane. I don't know why. Because I, I love sleeping on planes, but I get coffee anyways. Uh, and, 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 and so, but if I'm on a plane and I'm, and I'm like, I'm okay, I'm, this, this is kind of intense, right? When you hear people like, oh, you can hear the, the noises and the complete stranger, you know, grabs your arm, you know, it, it can be kind of intense. And, but you know what you'd always do is I always watch the, the flight attendants because they're just like, mm, whatever, you know what I mean? Like they don't, they're just so used to it. Why? Now, when I got on the plane, even if I'm terrified of, of turbulence and, and of crashing, I still got on the plane. I'm still putting my faith in that plane, the structural integrity of that plane. And, the, and the, so the person who's just cheering because they landed safe, and then the, the, the flight attendant who's like, I, this is my job, you know what I mean? Like this, this is nothing for me. They both put their object of faith in the plane. Jesus is the plane. Jesus is the only thing that's saving me from free falling 34,000 feet to my death. That's the only thing. And so when I'm... When I have my object of faith in the plane, even if I'm, I'm timid and I'm scared, I don't know, is this really true? Is this gonna save me? Is this gonna protect me from dying as I do this? I'm still putting my faith in the plane to save me. 
and a pilot. All analogies break down. Don't, don't, don't do that to me. Right? And, and then you have the individual who's like, yeah, of course we're going to make it. Right? We, this, this, we, of course we're going to make it. There's no, no problem here. I'm more likely to die on the way to the airport, right? In my car, right? All those stats that people will talk about. Jesus here is the object of the faith and that's not what the disciples are doing. They're, they're putting it in themselves. They're putting it in something that they saw. So continuing in the story here in Mark chapter nine, verse 20, it says, so they brought him and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he fell on the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this from childhood? He answered, he has often throw, it has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. <laughs> you catch the father's line there? This is why we talk about the object of faith and not the amount of faith. But if you can do anything, and you can understand why Jesus, Jesus says, well, if, go back again to the baptism of Jesus. Jesus gets pulled out of the water and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. And then it says, immediately he was brought out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil's first words to Jesus are, if you are the son of God. And here it is, round two. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration and God says, this is my son whom I love. He comes down the mountain and this guy says, if you can. This is always our battle. This is always gonna be our battle as a human being to when God says something for us to go, is that true? Ah, man, I, if, if Jesus really is God, then maybe, no, 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 no. This is the object of faith thing. That's happening. And Jesus, again, says to this man, if you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And this is not Jesus here saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise this boy. I'm gonna heal this boy just to show you how, how powerful I am. And it made me think of, of Jeannie, uh, sorry, we're getting back to the 80s, early 90s today, I guess more this morning, right? Genie in the bottle when he's released, right? And then Aladdin, they're in the cave and he says, you get three wishes. And Aladdin's like, oh man, too bad this genie is not powerful enough to get us out of here, right? And the genie gets really mad and he ends up, let me show you how powerful I am. And, they, and he takes him out, right? And he flies out and, and that's not what's happening here. This is not Jesus saying, if I can, let me show you how powerful I am. His response is, Everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything is possible. And I need to reiterate, this is not a lack of an amount of faith in Christ. This is a lack of Christ being the object of our faith or of specifically this man's faith. And a wrong interpretation of this verse and of this passage can do some really, really bad harm. I know there are people in this room who have, been, have heard when you're going through suffering and going through a trial, uh, maybe, maybe you don't believe enough. Uh, maybe you don't have enough faith in this thing that's happening to you right now. Oh, you're suffering. Is there any sin you need to repent of right now? Whoa, 
That's, that's not how God operates. It's not how Jesus operates. He's not saying you just need to muster up more faith. You just gotta just believe more. He's saying, believe in me. I am the object of your faith. And that kind of interpretation caused major, major pain. I remember when my dad, again, uh, those of you who don't know me, my dad died when I was 14 from cancer. And I remember my senior pastor, like going to my dad, uh, is there any uh, you know, unconfessed sin in your life? And, and maybe you just, gotta, you just gotta pray more. You just gotta believe more because of this. Everything's possible for the one who believes. So clearly if you're not being healed, you don't believe. That's garbage. And that is a, that is a message from the pit of hell. I need to believe in Jesus. Why? Does that mean Jesus didn't believe enough? Because if I'm not mistaken, Jesus suffered, Jesus died, and Jesus was loved by his Father. I can be loved by the Father and suffer. So now the Father then says this. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. What a line. What a line. I mean, it's one of these lines I think we can apply to almost anything in any day in our life. Of like, I'm praying for this thing. Yeah, I, I am sick with this thing and I believe in you. You are the object of my faith, but man, help, help me overcome my unbelief. I see you in this thing and I, and I have my friends and my neighbors that are, that are, that are maybe deconstructing, that have left the church and, and God, man, I, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. How many times have we had to pray or prayed for more faith? If I believe Ephesians chapter two, that faith is a gift from God, then we can pray for more of it. I believe, help my unbelief. And what's wild about this passage is the father comes to Jesus to help his son. And in doing so, Jesus instead helps the father. Not instead, but in addition to. That this seems like, oh, this is all about the demon, the, the spirit, unclean. That takes a back seat in this story. That all of a sudden now becomes about faith and who Jesus is. That's the main point of this story. I want to do a quick theology of prayer. By quick, I mean quick. I'm not going to answer every question on, on prayer and, on, on, and what, what's the power of prayer and what's the purpose of prayer, but we've got nine weeks to get there. But let me just at least, uh, I wet the whistle? Is that a, I don't know what that means. It, sure. Let me at least just, <laughs> I can't think of a phrase. Let me just get the ball rolling uh, when it comes to theology of prayer. The first thing is that God responds to our prayers, right? right? We, we are, as a church, we have reformed theology, all these different things that I believe, and everybody, I don't care if you're not even reformed, everyone believes in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. How does it work that an unchanging, sovereign God will listen to my prayer? I don't know. But what I do know is that God does respond to human prayers. And I could sit here, and I'm not gonna do it today, we could list any number of prayers where God says, right, for example, he goes to Moses, and he sees the atrocities of the nation of Israel and God's like, and Moses is like, man, we should just kill them all and start over. And God's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll be right back. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was, just, I was just talking out loud here, right? Let me let's just think about this. And it says God repents, God relents. It doesn't mean that God had to repent of sin. God had to change, he changed his direction. Repent means a 180. He went from, I'm gonna kill them and we're gonna start over with Moses to, 
Yeah, I'm not going to because Moses, you, you prayed about this. You reached out about this. That happens. And even if it doesn't happen like that in our own minds or, or even in our situations all the time, I do know that when someone is unrepentant and is in death and in trespasses of sins, that when they repent, they call out to God, God, please forgive me, that, that then God's response to them is new life. That I do know. And God does respond to prayer. And at very, very, very base minimum, when it comes to prayer, the, uh, uh, this is Revelation, sorry, Revelation chapter nine, Revelation chapter eight or nine, sorry, I don't know why I don't have that up there. Starting in verse three, he says, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people in the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. In, in base, the, the worst case scenario, what do what my prayers do? It, it is a sweet smelling savor to God seated on the throne. That's powerful. That I can actually give some kind of enjoyment from the creator of the universe with my prayers. It's powerful. A couple of practical tips for prayer. This is me talking, all right? There might be, I could try to manipulate scripture, but here's why you should do it this way. Can't, I'm not gonna do that to you, all right? One is pray often. Right? The Apostle Paul talks about pray without ceasing. And I think that there's sometimes where we looked at, at uh, um, uh, Nahum, uh, who uh, when he, um, uh, when they're rebuilding the temple and he gets, he gets in front of uh, the, the king, King Xerxes, and it just says, and I prayed before the God, I prayed, before, I prayed to God, and then it's, oh God, could you, or, oh king, could you do this? Right? There's like no prayer even listed. And then even here, I believe, help my unbelief, that it doesn't need to be these long, drawn-out seasons and times of prayer. It could just be in, the, in my thoughts and minds. Because of the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God, he hears my thoughts. I don't even pray out loud. It can just be, God, help me, and give an answer, whatever it may be. That's one. Number two, and this is just me, again, personally talking. Keep a journal next to you. Not necessarily, you can keep like a, some people keep prayer journals is what I prayed for. And then on the other side, this is when it was answered. I think that's really powerful when you do that. Um, I'm not that organized. And that's why I keep, I keep some kind of piece of paper next to me because I'll, if I'm spending a time in prayer, you know what pops into my head? I need to clean the right top corner of my garage. You know what I mean? It's like, where did that come from? Right? And I got to write it down so I remember, so it's out, gone. I'm not going to forget about it. I wrote it down. Now I'll throw the piece of paper away when, I, when I'm done praying. Right? But it's there. Right? And it helps keep the distractions for me to a minimum. Right? When I'm thinking, oh, I got to pick my kid up today. Don't forget. Okay, write it down. Right? For some reason, that popped in my head when I'm praying. Write things down. For me, it's been helpful. Right? Just the just thing. Another one is keep your Bible next to you. There's something about praying the words of God reading his promises and saying, God, you have said this. This has been true from eternity past and I'm, I need this in my life right now and yet this is how great you are. And let me reflect this back to you. That's so powerful. There's a lot more that could be said, but again, that's not, there's not like necessarily verses that go with this. These are just things that, that have helped me. And I would say this is, this is a spiritual discipline. I kind of shudder at spiritual disciplines because again, when I was younger, I was like required to pray. I was required to, to have a journal of my Bible time and, and I got graded on it, right? How much time you got, you spent. And so when I was in seminary, it was again, the same thing that we had to pray at every, every, it was like, it started at 15 minutes and every week we had to add 15 minutes until it got to two hours. And I was like, how in the world? 
How in the world am I gonna spend two hours in prayer? Now, thankfully, I'm a pastor. And so I remember there was a couple times where I'm like, I got two hours, start the clock. I'm gonna start praying. And my boss would come in and be like, hey, what's up? Why on your knees? Like, oh, I'm just praying. Like, oh yeah, cool. I'll, I'll shut the door, right? I know not everyone has that luxury to just pray for two hours uh, at work, right? But this is, this, it was so good for me to get into a habit. So I bring it up, to get in the habit of praying. I don't do that anymore, okay? It's full, full disclosure. I do not pray for two hours a day. Going back to this text though, the father comes to Jesus to help his son in doing so. Jesus helps the father first. Doesn't mean he doesn't help the son. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet and he stood up. Again, this impure spirit here takes a backseat to the story. It's not the focus. It's the power of Jesus, the victory of Jesus that requires faith in who Jesus knows who he is. And so then the disciples respond. And they say, after Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why, why couldn't we do it? When, when is it gonna be our turn? Right, I'm sure Peter and James and John, they're like, man, guys, you, you should have seen what we saw. Jesus was like, this crazy thing happened up on this mountain. We gotta, this is cool. And they're like, when, when do we get the turn? When do we get the power? Again, context is incredibly important. And so even though it's not necessarily our text for this morning, going down to the next chapter in verse 30, it says, they left that place and passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. A lot of times we see this grand thing. We see God's power on display and we ask, I want that. I remember going back, this just popped in my head. I remember going, going back, I was preaching through or teaching through the prodigal son. And at that time, and I know this is maybe not a name, what do I have? oh geez, I just dug myself in a hole. At the time, I'm gonna just finish it because if I don't finish it, at the time, Kanye West had just released his album, Jesus is King, okay? Sorry, I won't say his name anymore. He just, wrote, he just had written and released his album. And after he did that, he started planting mega churches like every Sunday. And I was up here preaching on the text of like, I'm the, I'm the older brother. I've been in the faith for a while. I've been working in ministry now for a long time. And I feel like the older brother is saying, I just want the goat. Can I just have a goat? You give this younger brother this feast. I just want a goat. And so many times we fall into the same place as the disciples. Like, I see your power. I see it on display. I want that. When do I get that? And we need to be reminded of the reality that it's not too often that God just does something massively big on display, that usually it's a steady life of suffering and trials where the, usually the person needs to put their faith in Jesus as the object of our faith. And it's exactly what is happening here. He's saying, it's not about the transfiguration. I've got to die. And they didn't understand. So that again, he replies to them, this kind can only come out by prayer. This isn't about us and our power and, and the different things that we get to do in the name of God. This is about Jesus, that he is king. He wins the victory. Dependence, utter, complete dependence on God. 
I'm gonna read a quote and then we'll get to our gospel application this morning. This is a quote from Eugene Peterson. If you're familiar with the Message Bible, he uh, was the one who, who wrote that translation. He is a brilliant man who, who has written a lot of things. Let me just read this quote on prayer. He's specifically gonna be referencing the book of Psalms, uh, which I know does not have anything to do with what we're talking about today, other than there's a lot of prayers in the Psalms, real, heartfelt prayers. Like God wants us to be honest with him in our prayers. And we can for sure see that in the book of Psalms. Eugene says this. In a world of prayers that indulge the religious ego and cultivate passionate longings, the Psalms stand out with a kind of angular austerity, right? Sternness, this many faceted way of being frank. Left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us, the Psalms, train us in that conversation. We are wrestled into obedience, subjected to the strenuous realities of living by faith in the God who reveals himself to us. There's a difference between praying to an unknown God whom we, have, uh, whom we hope to discover in our praying and praying to a known God revealed through Israel and Jesus Christ who speaks our language. In the first, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. In the second, we practice obedient faith. The first is a lot more fun. The second is a lot more important. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. And when we pray, it's not about checking the box. I prayed today, I did this thing, and I, I prayed the right thing. It's putting our faith and the object of our faith in that God. So in gospel application, maybe just a practical thing, what's stopping you from praying? What's stopping you from praying, period? What's stopping you from praying more? What is it? it could, there could be any number of things. What is it? What can we change about our style, lifestyle, our habits, or whatever it may be to pray? God wants to hear from you. You're his child. I don't know any parent who doesn't want to hear from their kid. Secondly, keep Jesus as the object of our faith. Keep him there. I believe, help my unbelief. I, I, it's so easy to stray, to try to fix things ourselves, to, to do things and to keep Jesus as the object of our faith. So last thing here. A lot of times we put God to the test when it comes to our prayers. God, if you really loved me, you would take this thing from me. God, if you really loved my boy, you'd heal him. Again, Jesus came to this earth. God loved Jesus and Jesus suffered and he bled and he died for us that we might have life. And it takes faith in that Christ, in that savior, in Jesus to know that we are loved unconditionally in spite of our failings and inadequacies and our sins that God sent his only son into this world to die for us. And if we would put our faith in him, that object of our faith, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Let me pray, and as we do every week, uh, we have communion. And we have the elements up here. We've got the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to partake of these elements today. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church, but if you say, yes, King Jesus, maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never heard. Maybe I got, you thought, oh, I gotta, I gotta do things and be this right person. No, object of faith in Christ. Then you can freely partake of these elements with us this morning. 
the worship team is going to play a couple songs, and as they do, feel free to grab the elements and pray, be seated, and, and um, let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for our time together as we look at prayer. Again, we, again, we really look at a lot of theology as far as what does prayer do or how does it work exactly. But what we do know is that we're commanded to pray. What we do know is that we can follow the example of your son who prayed and prayed a lot, spent seasons of prayer. And there were times where God, you, didn't answer even the way that Jesus may have wanted. That you are good and you are loving. And there are times that you tell us as your children, no, that's not the plan. And that we would continue to have our faith in you. So God, we love you. We praise you for what you're going to do. Uh, Be with us as we partake of these elements that we remember the finished work of Christ on the cross, the remission of our sins. And as he told the disciples, I must die but I must be raised again. And they didn't know what that meant, but now we do know what that meant. It meant he must be risen again from the dead, that your son is alive. We pray these things in his name, amen.